Welcome to the Glasgow Triathlon Club podcast. Um, this month we'll hear from dietitian Natalie Jones. We have a cyclocross race report from Paul Glenn and our monthly club news as well. Apologies, the sound is not perfect on our interview with Natalie this month. and um, We're still learning, as you know, um, but we hope that we'll have that sorted for next month and it should be better. Welcome to Natalie Jones, a registered dietitian. Natalie is a member of the club and she works as a dietitian in Glasgow. Um, she focuses on weight loss and also sport, being a triathlete herself. So we're going to go through some of the questions that you guys sent us today. Um, we are going to try and keep the focus on um, triathlon and sport. Um, but first of all, Natalie, what is a dietitian? There are quite a lot of... Um, variables in the health and fitness industry we might say there's nutritionists and nutritional advisors and dietitians what's a registered dietitian so um a dietitian and uh, the title of a dietitian is protected so it's protected by the healthcare professionals council um that means that not anyone can call themselves a dietitian so um there's a kind of minimum qualification level which is usually undergrad um most of us have um undergrads in some other science subject and then um a postgraduate or a masters in dietetics and you have to have under, undergone um clinical placement supervision um and there's also a kind of code of conduct and a set of regulations that we have to stick to and we have to abide by. So um, we have to make sure that we're keeping up to date in current practice, keeping up with the evidence base, um, only really promoting things that do have an evidence base. Um, so it really means that when you go to a dietitian, you know what you're getting. Um, you can have a nutritionist that could call themselves a nutritionist if they've, got, they've read a book or they've got a general interest. <laughs> Um, they might have done a PhD in nutrition. They may be extremely qualified and know more than me in a specific subject of dietetics or in, in, in terms of nutrition. Um, so you don't know what you're getting with that. Yeah. Um, you can be a registered nutritionist. Yeah. Um, and that is different. So those people also have a, um, a, a qualification minimum that they have to have reached and they have to be okay. registered on a register. But be um, wary of really people who maybe call themselves a nutritionist because it could mean anything. Yes. Perfect. Um, okay. So a lot of people will come to you, I know they come to me as a PT and say, what is a healthy diet? So Natalie, what is a healthy diet? <laughs> I think probably I come across more people that either assume that a diet is extremely healthy okay. or that it's definitely not healthy. Um, I tend to not fix things that aren't broken. So as I said before, you know, a dietitian, we stick to the evidence base um, on recommendations, but there's plenty of people that don't follow exactly what I think would be healthy um, or the kind of thing that I think they should be doing. However, they've got enough energy, they're not ill, they're training well, they're feeling good. And if something's not broken, I tend not to try and fix it. Um, when we're making diet changes, things need to be stuck at quite a long time. Things need to be maintainable. Um, I tend not to kind of rip the rug from under somebody and start changing their diet from A to Z. Um, I tend to look at things that they're struggling with when people come to see me they tend to have particular issues that they're having a problem with yeah. and then I try and solve those things through diet um but it's often a lot of people will often say they don't didn't expect me to not change as much or rather they thought I would change a lot more okay. and they come out kind of feeling quite relieved you know um a lot of the time I'm looking at the balance of diet I'm looking at people will come to me particularly athletes with issues for weight loss um, energy levels yeah. they might think they need certain supplements mm -hmm. performance gains that kind of thing okay. um, 
so a lot of the time I'm looking at what they currently eat and then fixing the problems. Yeah, okay. And as a dietitian, you're able to prescribe an actual diet for somebody or a meal plan to follow, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people come to me expecting a meal plan. Um, What I tend to do is um, a portion plan. I work out the calorie requirements. That's the kind of fuel in the car. Um, A lot of things can be fixed by getting the calorie requirements right um, in terms of energy levels, fullness, um, hunger, um, training capacity. Um, I then break it down into types of food. So people who heard about macros, um, I tend to look at it in food groups, so protein, carbohydrate, dairy, that side of it. Um, And I can work out from how much of all those foods they would need. That in turn makes it balanced and I'll show them how they fit that into their life. Um, that the benefit of that over me just telling them what to eat is that if I just tell them what to eat, what happens when they go on holiday, what happens when they get bored of my three options I've given them for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, and it means that they can be flexible with it. It can also depend on their hunger level. They might be hungry at that time of day. Um, they might have a day when they're particularly active and then the next day they're hungrier. So you know, some, some people do just want a meal plan. Um, the kind of people that do, and I'm not stereotyping, is often men when it's been their first <laughs> diet oh so a lot of them will come to me and say they just want me told what to eat yeah. and you know they do very well doing that yeah. and a lot of those people tend and I'm really generalizing tend <laughs> not to have the same emotional link with food yeah. and really do just need to know what to eat and I've had men that have eaten the same four breakfasts four lunches four dinners four years and they've lost weight and kept it off and it's fine yeah. you know, it doesn't work when you have people that are really the really kind of food loving people mm-hmm. or the people that use foods you know for comfort for energy for as part of their social life yeah. they need more variety but it's individual mm-hmm. okie dokie so i thought what we would do now is just go through some of the questions that we've got so i'm gonna run a couple of um questions together um so we've got here the first one what and how much should we eat and drink before and after a one-hour swim or run and how long before or after the exercise should we eat it and then we have a second question um so the same person's asked and how would you do that for two hour cycles and months and then sean has asked a very similar question which is um my feeling for a long session so over two hours is water and malt loaves and it seems to work but would anything else be better? I like the loaves, and bottles are easier to clean if you never put anything in them other than water. I am a massive fan of malt loaves, so <laughs> I can't see a problem with that. But shall we take the one-hour sessions first and talk about what we should eat before, during, and after, and then maybe go to the longer stuff? Is that okay? Perfect. Um, so I think there was something I read quite recently that was quite a helpful phrase and it was to fuel for the work that you're going to do and for the purpose of the session. So when we're looking at a one hour session, you can probably get away with not doing something right and that one hour session being absolutely fine. So when we think about the main um, limitations of exercise performance, particularly at high intensity exercise, Um, is carbohydrate stores, so the glycogen that's already in your liver and your muscles. Now, most of us, even if we didn't eat breakfast and then we still did an hour spin class or something, even if that was high intensity, we'd still have some glycogen there. That kind of bonking feeling or that kind of uh, runners think about it, kind of hitting the wall kind of feeling where you just pretty quickly in a matter of minutes feel pretty rough, pretty lightheaded, sick, and kind of can't concentrate and do things. That's when sort of sugar levels are lower. Yeah. So really, when we're looking at a one hour session, if you're wanting to maximize your performance during that session, so let's say you were doing 
VO2 max um, intervals, for example, and you want to make sure that you can hit those watts on the bike, you need to keep the carbohydrate up. So what I would say for that is making sure that you're getting some carbohydrate in before. So the timing of that would be kind of naught to two hours beforehand. So if let's say you're doing that at six o'clock in the morning on a turbo, you know, I don't expect you to be getting up at four in the morning, um, but it very much depends on your tummy tolerance. So if you can tolerate eating a couple of handfuls of cereal or porridge, and then immediately going on the bike or run, absolutely fine. It's very much individual in terms of your, how your tummy copes with that. If you really can't and you're doing high intensity sessions, um, that hour session you could have like a Lucasade, Lucasade Sport, other brands are available um, for that session to have, so you're getting some kind of um, sugar in during that. Yeah. But you don't need to, if it's a low intensity session, it's much less important so a lot of people talk to me about fasting training particularly when it comes to um, losing weight as well and also um, adaptations to using fat as a fuel um, and when you're doing lower intensity exercise it's less of an issue and some people will do fasting and have a coffee or something beforehand yeah okay yeah. so that covers the yeah the, the one hour thing oh yeah. and after and was after. it Did we eat anything after a one hour session um Again, if you're if it's if you're training, if you're doing that one hour session and you're doing that three times a week, what I'm gonna say now is less important because you will have eaten in between. Yeah. If you're doing the hour session on the bike in the morning and then at lunchtime you're going for a swim, yeah. how well you've recovered and by that replaced your glycogen from that session has an effect on how good your next performance would be. So especially if you're training twice a day, you want that second session to be equal quality. Yeah. Then we're looking at carbohydrate and protein together. Mm -hmm. So that's been shown to have a better effect than protein on its own or carbohydrate on its own. Okay. So an example would be if you did a fasted ride, for example, having something like egg on toast or your cereal with milk, so you've got protein and carbohydrate after you finish and you're looking at as soon as possible, really. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, I'm going to talk about an event that we did together because I think what you touched upon there about all being down to the individual is really important. Do you remember we did that night swim at 11 o'clock one night in summer <laughs> <laughs> and we both went out for dinner before. We had dinner at 8 o'clock and I had I was a bit scared about what to eat before. It was only about 2k. Was it 2k or 1k? I think it might it have been. Long. It was a lot. It was a short race. <laughs> And I thought, I'm just going to eat exactly what Natalie eats, because <laughs> she's a dietitian. It'll be fine. And you were absolutely fine. I was not fine. Yeah. I genuinely thought I was going to be sick. And that was three hours. Like, we had dinner at 8 o'clock, and we swam at 11, and I really was close to throwing up on that event. And you were absolutely fine, weren't you? Yeah. So... It makes a really big difference on what your tummy tolerates. Yeah. Also, what you're going to do. So what you can tolerate on a bike is a lot more than what you can tolerate swimming-wise. And a lot of that is gravity. If you think, especially if you've got protein in that meal. So hopefully I didn't have a lot of protein in that meal. I can't remember what I had. Was it fish you had? Oh, it was protein then. I might not have been caring too much. I don't know. But um, yeah, so if, if you have a lot of pro protein, um, is in digest mainly in your stomach so that's com compa compared to carbohydrate which is digested from your mouth all the way through your digestive system okay. um, so if you've got a lot of protein in your tummy and then you go horizontal the chances of feeling sicker <laughs> is higher um, so if I'd been I, don't, I can't remember what I had but if a better thing would have been something like a bowl of cereal beforehand yeah. or a couple of bits of toast I think we were just getting a bit social <laughs> Everybody has a lovely time. Yes, but I think that's what what works. It's practicing what works for you. Yeah. 
you know, and then replicating that again. And the difficult thing is as well when you, you know, I certainly didn't do any nighttime training for that, right? No, that, that, that's you know, that's also all my swimming is morning. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, you don't, but you really, ideally, if that had mattered a lot, you'd want to be practicing it at that time so you know what you're doing. Because yes. the other thing with evening sessions is you've got all the food that's been in you the rest of the day it wasn't my fault at all okay <laughs> <laughs> okay so what about the longer sessions right. yeah so longer sessions are really it starts getting more more important when you're looking at over 90 minutes again it ma- it depends as well what you're getting from the session and how important it is to you so if we're thinking of a low intensity three-hour ride for example that is less, and, and it's not a race situation. You might think, well, actually, it'd be quite useful to work on a little bit of a deficit so that on a on a race, you can then have more carbohydrate then and feel the difference. Um, if you need the quality of that session optimum, so particularly on a race situation, you're looking at replacing carbohydrate all the time. So that's about half a gram to a gram and a half per kilogram of weight. Yeah. So... I'm about 60 kilos, so that's getting in about 30 grams per hour minimum. Yeah, so up to 90 grams. So when you go beyond a gram per kilo, Mm -hmm. so that would be like 60 grams for me. Um, When you go beyond that, um, tummy issues can be a bit of a problem. But if you you have kind of a mixture of glucose and fructose together, that can help it. So it's kind of trying things out a bit to to put that into kind of normal language. um, About 30 grams is about a gel or an isotonic drink. So you're looking at about that at least mm-hmm. per hour. A heavier man needs more than that. Yeah. Yep. So it's looking at the session and thinking, how important is it to me that I perform well on this? Mm-hmm. Um, is it a race? Is it a training session where you want to replicate the race situation? So what you're doing kind of five weeks out from a, from a Ironman or half Ironman or something? Or is it a social ride where you're chatting to your friends and it doesn't matter as much? Yeah. Um, so yes, but it is, it's fueling for the work that you're doing. Okay, perfect. And what about, I mean, Sean has specifically said here, water and malt loaves. Yeah, um, ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that he's missing there from his session? No. So, you know, get, getting the fluid in, um, probably the electrolyte side of it, if it's if he's very sweaty, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so if you're sweating a lot, if it's very hot, um, if it's, yeah, if you're needing kind of extra electrolytes, you could do with maybe some kind of electrolyte, like like the Nun tablets or electrolyte tablets, um, yeah. in your water. Um, but really, you're getting some electrolytes anyway the minute you're eating anything. Um, yeah, it's it's seeing what works. You know, a lot of people um, like having um, protein when they're eating. I find tummy wise, that's not particularly helpful. I say me, not not just for me, but for lots of people, find that they um, can feel quite sick with that. And also, having protein with it um, slows down the absorption of sugar, which you're not really wanting when you're f- trying to fuel on the bike. Okay. So I'd say malt loaves are fine. Perfect, because mm-hmm. that's my favourite, okay. as you know. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, dokie. So we have another question here about supplements. Um, Which supplements, including vitamins, minerals, protein, BCAA, creatine, sports drinks, etc., are worth it? Which are a waste of money and how and when do we take them? Good question, because this comes up a lot and I think it's a bit confusing for everybody. Um, We were just talking about creatine last week, you and I. Um, So yeah, Natalie, what do we do? What do we take? 
Okay, if we look at the kind of simplest ones, so those are the kind of sports drinks, Lucas A Sport, Gatorade, Powerade, Tailwind, Active Root, Morton, all that kind of stuff, and gels. In theory, you could make those yourself yeah. right, and save yourself a lot of money. It would also be a lot of hassle, and you probably won't get the concentration right. And it might taste horrid. And it might taste horrid, yes. So if we're thinking about the kind of supplements I would advise people taking, an isotonic sports drink and or gels, bars, that kind of thing, means that you know the dose you're getting. That is very helpful to replicate it. Um, if we're thinking of energy on the bike in races, you know exactly how much you're taking in, you know how much electrolytes are in it, um, you know what you can tolerate and you can replicate the same thing. One thing I have struggled with is when people come to me and they say, well, I make my own energy balls. How many of these should I be taking? Now, in theory, I can work that out. I can find out what the recipe is and how many balls they make in that recipe. But I don't know if that those raisins are equally spread out. Yeah. So me just being a little bit pernickety with stuff thinks, well, that's, that's all right, but it's a little bit risky in case you have a bit more than you would normally do on race day so you can't replicate. So there is a use of things like energy drinks and um, uh, energy supplements, so gels, shot blocks, um, bars, that kind of stuff during races if it's planned. They are expensive, so I would tend to use them mainly in races and also in practicing. Um, I wouldn't be taking shot blocks with me on every single ride because they'll just start costing a lot. Um, so you, you can make isotonic drinks yourself but you need to make sure that the concentration is right the reason it's isotonic is that it means that you're getting an equal amount the right amount of carbohydrate and also fluid delivery um, when things are more concentrated so things like um, morton and tailwind for example that's heavier on the um, energy side of it as opposed to the fluid side of it and people often say to me oh, I, I dilute um my isotonic drink, my Lucas Sport or whatever, um, because I feel I prefer it more. What you're doing then is you're cutting down on the energy side of it. So you're kind of reducing the point of it, really, the purpose of it. So I'd say those are useful to have, um, but not essential in training all the time, as long as you know you can tolerate them. Um, what, what was next? Um, we have got, so we've got vitamins, minerals, protein. Okay. BCAA. Okay. Um, vitamins and minerals are helpful in terms of supplementation if you know that you have low vitamin levels already. So the only way you would know that is if you get a blood test and it shows you that. So a lot of the time I see people, for example, who may have um, been anemic in the past and then a few months later or years later, they get that same tiredness feeling and they think, oh, I'm probably anemic again. I won't bother going to the doctor. I'll just take iron tablets. <laughs> So the problem with that is they don't know anyone like that. No. <laughs> and that tiredness could be nothing to do with their diet. It yeah. could be to do with the fact they have a three-year-old. It could be to do, <laughs> not mentioning it, it could be to do with lots of different things. So the problem with just self-medicating on things is if you haven't got a low level anyway, if your levels are normal, having super doses of things does not make you better, fitter, in the case of iron, able to use more oxygen or anything like that. So you could be having more of it when it too much than you need. If you have too much of storable vitamins and minerals, um, that can be a problem and it can also compete with other vitamins and minerals for absorption. Okay. So um, we don't want to be overdoing things when we don't need a deficiency. When you do have a deficiency, um, what we need to do is correct that and quite often you have to correct it with higher than your normal recommended daily allowance. Yeah. So in the example of iron, for example, you get about 15 milligrams of iron a day. 
um, through normal diet. That's also what a multivit would give you. Yeah. When you're anemic, you're usually on three tablets of 60 a day. So you're on like 10 times that amount um, because you're trying to build stores up. So that's when a multivit isn't really going to touch the surface of something. So when something's deficient and by deficient, I mean blood deficient, yeah. that's what you're you're looking at doing so it's, it's kind of about not self-medicating on yeah. vitamins and you only know that if you go and get a blood test and then you okay. subsequently go and get another blood test afterwards once you've finished yes exactly and, and and one thing as well is but when that's been treated it might be that you can maintain it through diet or it might be that you have bigger losses yeah. so um a lot of runners have higher requirements um when we're looking at um I keep using iron as an example, it's kind of an easy one to do, but um, when we're looking at that, you're, you're breaking down red blood cells with foot strike. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if um, people ha- women have particularly heavy periods, for example, they can be losing blood that way. Yeah. Um, but it's important once, you, once you've once um, you taken the dose that you need to get your blood levels up to get that retested, and then when you stop taking it, that you get tested again in six months to see if you're dropping again. Okay. Yeah, and also to see if the, the, the dose is working anyway. Yeah, and what about vitamin D, since we do live in Scotland and we don't ever go outside? Well, I've got personal experience of that one. <laughs> so, so everyone should be taking a vitamin D um, supplement anyway for that sort of sole reason that um, we don't get the same amount of sunlight and even if we are outside and we've often got kind of long sleeve clothes on and that kind of thing, you, you get enough vitamin D from... I think it's 20 minutes outside in the sun mm-hmm. through the kind of spring and summer months, but you need to have your face and your forearms oh. uncovered. So even in the winter, even in the summertime, we're often wearing cardies and things, so that yeah. wouldn't really apply. Now, I'm a very bad dietitian, and I didn't really take any vitamin D. <laughs> and uh, food is fortified. A lot of um, cereals, for example, you're, you're getting fortification in. Um, a lot of kind of dairy foods, you're getting vitamin D fortification in. And I was thinking, well, I'm outside quite a lot. Yeah. It's probably fine. I take a vitamin D every now and then when I remember and I tidy it away and I don't take it again. And then um, I was chatting to an uh, um, ankle consultant who said that all runners, no matter what, should be on quite high dose vitamin D. So that kind of changed my attitude a little bit. So always every day for life. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I'm definitely taking it now. <laughs> yeah. One thing to mention as well about the taking vitamins things is yeah. when you know you're on a restricted diet. So we're going to talk about vegan diets going forward. But yeah. vegan diets, for example, um, need a vegan-specific multivit, particularly with um, iodine and B12 in it, because you're not going to get enough of that on a vegan diet. So sometimes you need to be taking things kind of prophylactically, like kind of before... A problem happens because it's going to happen if you never have those things. Yeah. Yeah. So other times people get prescribed vitamins and mineral supplements because they're at risk. So examples of that would be um, people at risk of um, osteoporosis, for example, people under having medication, people um, that can affect bone density. Yeah. Um, may well be treated for that kind of beforehand because of a risk factor. We did actually get a question specifically about that. So somebody messaged us and said that they've had issues with iron and vitamin B12 deficiency, um, which has come and gone over the years. Um, 
as this person says that they like to, they think that they eat well, but they've had to start back on vitamin B12 injections again, um, um, as they weren't really feeling very good last year and regular training was not possible. Um, she says, I've been trying to read about the impact of exercise on iron and B12 levels, but I've read conflicting information and I'm unsure how credible that information is that I've read online. Great to question the information you read online, I might add. <laughs> um, so um, does exercise deplete or improve uh, iron and vitamin 12 levels? So exercise doesn't improve levels. No. So it might increase your requirements for it. Yeah. As I was saying about the B, the um, the the, re the the foot strikers that I was mentioning about the iron might possibly also happen with B twelve. I'm not really sure about that. Um, but if you're breaking down red blood cells from that foot strike, that can make a difference. Um, also, if we're thinking about um, if if those levels increased by having vitamin B twelve injections, um, that would kind of imply that it's an absorption issue. Yeah. So if um, some people, if their diets aren't high in B twelve, they can just take vitamin B twelve um, tablets. Yeah. Um, but if those aren't working, that would imply that it's not what's coming in. So what they're having, they could be eating steaks every day and still not be getting enough. Right. Um, so therefore, they would have vitamin B twelve injections. I think two or three monthly, something like that. Right. Um, and that would imply that it's an absorption issue and absorption can be affected by um, different medications that you're on. So a lot of kind of anti-reflux, um, like anti um, stomach acid type medications um, can affect B12 absorption. Also, um, I was going to affect something else. Intrinsic factor as well and something else, I can't remember. But yeah, it could be an absorption thing. Okay. Yeah. Oh yes, and that person actually did say that their intrinsic factor was fine. Okay. Yeah. I think probably it, it's monitoring those levels, seeing a GP, monitoring her levels while she's on the injections. Yeah. And also because she's okay for a while and then stopped. Yeah, and then stopped the injections. And, and then they reduced again. Yeah. So I suppose it's finding the optimum, kind of the minimum amount that she needs to have yeah. given to her. And it might just be the case that she needs to go every year to the doctors and get vitamin B12 injections. Well, it seems like it might be more often than that. Yeah. Because I think the literature says it needs to be every kind of two to three months, I right, think. Right, okay. So maybe that she needs them every two months rather than every three months. Or, yeah. But it's just it's just monitoring, thinking you, you do a, um, you give an amount to somebody and then you see what that effect has yeah. and how long it has that effect for. Okay. So it's probably just fine-tuning it for her. Yeah. And for somebody having the same issues, then they would they would do that all through their GP rather than a dietitian, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I suspect that, I just get them to see the GP and get blood test done. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Right. And the harmful effects of B twelve deficiency can be irreversible, so you need to get that one sorted. Okay. Mm -hmm. Moving on. Mm -hmm. Should we move on to protein? Protein. Protein. Right. So, I get calls all the time about people who think their protein intake isn't good enough. Yeah. Most of us eat like bodybuilders. There are exceptions to that. Yeah. Um, if we think about how much we need, general Joe Bloggs walking down the street, just under a gram per kilo. So that is very, very easily done. If you're vegan, it's a little bit harder to do. We'll explain a bit more about that when we talk about um, being vegan. Um, but if we're looking at endurance athletes, which you know, all, all of us are, we're looking at increasing from that kind of 0.8 grams per kilo to something between kind of 1 and 1.2 grams per kilo. Most of us are eating that anyway. Yeah. So when you're eating three meals a day, you are particularly if you're having any animal protein, so um, milk, cheese, yogurt, as good quality protein as chicken, fish, steak. Yeah. So people who are vegetarian still their protein's fine. Um, 
you're with a animal protein you're getting better quality protein so you're getting all the amino acids in it so they're not limiting in any just like that the um vegetable source proteins would be yeah. um the exceptions are soya um and tofu and other kind of soya derivatives and also um quinoa so those protein sources uh, would be equal quality to a yeah. to an animal yeah. protein most of us have enough of it um, the timing of it needs to be right about try, trying to get it after exercise. Yeah. Um, it's particularly useful for um, muscle and strength gain, but it doesn't happen without the training. Yeah. And that's one thing that kind of sounds kind of quite obvious when you say it, but I think a lot of people think, or they'll ask me about, you know, I need to get more muscle mass, should I just have more protein? Well, it's the strength training that causes the muscle to go on. Yeah. Um, and it's having enough protein to support that yes. adaptation. So in theory, for someone, so for someone who weighs a female who weighs sixty kilos who's training every day, that's kind of like three chicken breasts a day, ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they say I think the particular kind of groups of people that need to keep an eye out on the protein intake. I think that was one of the questions later on coming about um, women post menopause. So it's kind of expected that people kind of gain about a pound a year i think most people experience quite more than that but about a pound a year weight gain and losing about one percent body fat and yeah. um, what losing about one percent muscle mass sorry yeah. per year is normal mm-hmm. um and to try and re- reduce the losses so we're not really looking at even getting more muscle mass we're just trying to reduce the loss kind of depressingly yeah. um but when we're thinking of that um protein is really helpful particularly animal-based protein and they do recommend having it in kind of three smaller doses. So say 30 grams breakfast, lunch, dinner. So yeah. three chicken breasts or some other more interesting combination <laughs> would do. A couple of eggs would do. Yeah. A can of tuna would do. Yeah. A couple of apples and nuts. A slice of tofu. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of protein shakes, like unless you're really struggling to get your protein in in a day just because you're, I don't know, on the go and don't have yeah. access to a sandwich or something then it might be worthwhile investing in a protein shake yeah. but ultimately yeah I mean I tend to if, if people the kind of people that I would get on a protein supplement I probably wouldn't do a protein supplement I'd probably do a meal replacement right on top so because of that what you're doing there is you're getting some healthy fats in that you're getting some carbohydrate in it and they usually fortified so you're getting extra vitamins in so you're getting more from it um I would probably recommend things like um say a, a recovery drink or a meal replacement thing after exercise if people can't eat yeah. or that kind of really skinny man that can't put weight on no matter what he eats type of person yeah because especially younger men so kind of men under 25 particularly if they're in an active job training a lot busy that kind of person if i try and meet their calorie requirements and protein requirements through food they're gonna to have to be stuffed in their face all day and they just can't do it yeah. or they would just feel too full so in that way um protein um protein supplements or recovery um tra- shakes that have got protein and carbohydrate in or um, meal replacements can't tick a lot of boxes and it can just make it easier yeah yeah the other thing that does that is flavored milk Okay. Yeah, so milk is a really helpful recovery, particularly if it's got some kind of flavouring in that. So it's got the carbohydrate, like Nesquik example. Yeah. Okay. Things like Nesquik. And what about um something like BCAA or aminos? So the branch chain amino acids, there's there's three of them. So they're um leucine, isoleucine, and valine. So they're three different types. Yeah. Um. So they 
when I, I qualified 2003, and at that point it was kind of all the rage and people were taking these kind of supplements. There's no real evidence base that they have any effect over diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I read somewhere that one chicken breast has four times the amount of branched chain amino acids than one tab- tablet of the supplement does. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we know that you absorb vitamins, minerals better from food sources and supplements anyway. Yeah. Um, so there's no need for those. Mm-hmm. If you're eating a balanced diet, then yes. you don't really need to be worrying about this whatsoever. No. If you were vegan, for example, you wouldn't be getting much of the leucine side of it. Yeah. Um, the way of getting around that is making sure you're getting enough soya. Because okay. those, as I said before, the complete... Um, those branched chain amino acids are um, the part of all the amino acids that I was saying were complete in animal sources. Yeah. And creatine, you and I were just talking about this mm. this week. Creatine is a very effective way of increasing strength. Yeah. So it doesn't cause the strength on its own. You take creatine, you don't just get stronger. Mm-hmm. You have to do the exercise to make that happen. It's particularly helpful when people have reached a plateau in their strength. Mm-hmm. So let's say, I don't know, you're squatting 20 kilos, then 40, then 60, and then for ages it just stays at 60, yeah. for example. What creatine does is it helps you get over that plateau. So it's it's there for, it's useful for very short, intense bursts. So kind of 10 seconds upwards. So we're looking at sprinting. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at kind of um, jump height. We're looking at weight, um, lifting weights, that yeah. kind of thing. It's not going to do anything for a sprint triathlon. No. Yeah. Or an Ironman. Or definitely not for an Ironman. <laughs> What it might do is if over the winter you're trying to get stronger, mm-hmm. it would increase your strength gains possibly during that time. It works better for people who don't have creatine in their diet anyway. Creatine is mainly from animal muscle. So people who are vegetarian or vegan who have got lower levels anyway, it tends to work better for those people. You do get weight gain with it. Yeah. So that can be a little bit of a problem um, in terms of endurance training. Mm-hmm. Um but that weight gain is reduced after you lose it. So that's that's a water retention side effect. Yeah, okay. And then somebody else has asked about beetroot. So I've kind of stuck that onto the end of this section because mm-hmm. beetroot now is sort of used as a supplement almost by some people, isn't it? Drinking mm. their beetroot juice after their sessions. Blech. Yeah. Not for me. <laughs> so there is some evidence. It's basically because of the nitrates in it. So you get nitrates from lots of food anyway. You get it from um, like lots of dark green veg, um, spinach, that kind of thing. Um, you you also get it from actual beetroot. Um, when we're looking at how much you need, you need quite high doses of beetroot that you wouldn't be able to get just through diet alone. Yeah. So I can't remember the grams of nitrate that you need, but it's the little beet um, shots that you can get, the like little drink things. Um, you'd need to load up for that. I think um, evidence is something like two of them a day for about seven days beforehand. Okay. And then you have one right before you start or something like that as there's some literature on it um so the idea is that it causes vasodilation so it um increases the kind of blood supply and oxygen supply and therefore it allows you to utilize oxygen better so work hard and it's something i think it's like kind of small diff i can't remember the 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 improvement right i I tried it once (laughs) it's absolutely disgusting so it's very concentrated. You basically have to hold your nose while you drink it. Yep. And I was thinking, oh, it's no problem. I'll just get a coffee in straight afterwards. Mm-hmm. And apparently 
it doesn't some of it you need the saliva in your mouth matters for its absorption so you can't just dull the taste of it by rinsing your mouth out or brushing your teeth or something you have you have to savor it in your mouth and then and then drink it so it's and it made no difference to me i mean i think we're looking at a kind of maybe over a 20 mile time trial on a bike it's something like less than a minute now which might be important if you're at a very elite level yes but for us Maybe not so important. So would a bike fit? So would yeah. not having as much water on your bike? Losing half a pound. <sighs> yes. Yeah, okay. Mm, these are marginal gains. Yes. So mm. it's not for us. It's not for me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to... You, you haven't sold it to me whatsoever. No. It sounds absolutely horrendous. We try these things. But as a dietitian, I try quite a lot of stuff. Like, I try things... Because sometimes it's helpful when recommending it to people. Just sort of think, what, what have you actually tried? And... I'm not really convinced with anything. Like a lot of it doesn't really outweigh the cost and the actual benefit that you get. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. So should we talk a little bit more about the menopause? Because Fiona has asked about that. And if you follow mm. um Fiona online, you know she's been talking about um exercise and the menopause a lot recently. Um and it's yeah, it's really interesting and it's you know half half the population are gonna have to go through it at some point. Um, do we need to change our diets when we're going through the menopause? Please tell me no. Please tell me I can still eat chocolate when I'm <laughs> menopausal. In theory, do what you like. Yeah. <laughs> I think I see a lot of people that maybe have never had to worry about their weight before, those lucky kind of people who yeah. suddenly do have to start worrying or they are they have to stop worrying, that's the wrong terminology, but they it certainly started worrying them. It changes. It yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is because you start gaining weight tummy wise. So whereas people women who maybe have previously gained weight lower down, like on their bottom and their legs and things, um, suddenly start gaining in the middle and they feel it's more noticeable. It's also the more dangerous place to gain weight. So um, the kind of estrogen that would have protected us and made women less likely to have heart attacks compared to men is no longer protecting them. So you're getting that kind of central fat so more around the organs, so it's not as safe. So weight management becomes more important and it becomes more annoying for those women going through that the other thing as well is you're getting the tiredness with it you're getting the hot flushes with it and the night sweats you're not sleeping as well um often we know that when people are tired they then eat i hate saying the wrong things but they eat things they don't really otherwise would have done yeah um so it's kind of a time to maybe be more aware of what what's happening and mm-hmm. um, there's some evidence that phytoestrogen so kind of soya tofu um, small amounts, things like um, linseeds as well, are getting, um, give, give you some kind of estrogen, so give you kind of plant estrogen. And that for some women can help things like um, hot flushes and night sweats, that, okay. those kind of particular menopausal symptoms. You need to have quite a lot of it. So when people are asking me about that, I say try it for a month, see what happens. No harm in doing it. Um, the amounts are kind of three portions a day. So a soya yogurt, um, soya milk and you're taking coffee through the day and soy milk in your cereal that kind of volume yeah. so that's quite a bit if you don't like soya that adds another mm-hmm. um element into it um yeah it's it's more difficult you know the, the, the muscle mass that i was mentioning before that kind of one percent loss per year um is harder to keep on yeah um so is there anything else that we can we can do to balance that out or it's just a case of we've got to got to live with it and eat well and exercise and yeah, work out what works for you. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of about look, looking at the symptoms and then trying to fix that symptom. You know, for some people that 
those kind of hot flushes are a bigger thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's hunger levels, people feeling really hungry, kind of almost like premenstrual all the time, is yeah. what people explain, talk to me about. Um, in that case, making sure you're getting enough carbohydrate, enough protein, making sure that diet's balanced. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time it's getting the fundamentals right. Mm -hmm. um, often people come to me with kind of lots of random things that they're not sure if diet can help with. And yeah. I don't pretend to say, oh, I've got a solution to that. But sometimes getting the portions right and getting the amount of everything mm -hmm. balanced can fix quite a lot of stuff, okay. you know, and sometimes getting that, doing that as a kind of first line, getting the basics right first. The other problem as well is when, you're, um, when your metabolic rate is lower, so by that, getting older is part of that, losing muscle mass is part of a reduction in metabolic rate. Yeah. Um, to lose weight, the, the calorie amount needs to be less. Yeah. So that's the problem as well, that when you go too low, you can't get enough nutrition. Yes. So when I'm working out a calorie deficit for someone, if that calorie deficit comes out at under 1,400 calories, they're not going to get enough nutrition through diet alone. That would be a time we'd look at multivets, by the way. Yeah, okay. Um, but if, let's say, I'm working it out as a 60-year-old lady wanting to lose weight... And she's already not that overweight. So if you're bigger, you've got a higher meta metabolism anyway. Yeah. But if that woman is, I don't know, 11 stone and is normally 9 stone, she hasn't got a lot to lose. Yeah. But um, to lose it, her calorie requirements might come out at 1,000 calories. Well, she'll be starving on that and she won't get enough nutrition. Yeah. So that becomes harder. So then we're looking at losing half a pound a week or yeah. a quarter of a pound a week. And motivation-wise, that's not helpful. Yeah. Okay. So it's about looking at expectations and maybe not weighing every week, mm -hmm. thinking about, well, if I lose a pound every month, this yeah. time next year, I'm a stone lighter. Yeah. Okay. You know, thinking of it that way as opposed to where will I be next Monday. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, oh, Fiona also mentioned FODMAPs, which mm. you helped me with as well. So we've both gone through that process. It's absolutely horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, why would somebody... Um, go on the so-called FODMAP diet and how long would they do it for? Low FODMAP diet, brilliant invention in terms of being a dietitian because it works extremely well for most people. So a lot of the time when we're changing diet, um, it's very individual. Sometimes things work, sometimes they don't. We need to tweak things quite a bit. Um, we stay in contact with clients a lot to see what's um, how they're getting on. Low FODMAP diet is pretty predictable. So uh, a FODMAP is a fermentable carbohydrate, so we won't go into all, and it's probably only a few people that it's actually relevant to, um, but it's the main evidence base for irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and what we're doing with a low FODMAP diet is we're cutting out all fermentable carbohydrate. So we're cutting out anything that could be feeding gut bacteria, so um, the bacteria in your large intestine um, that could potentially could be causing gas production. So this happens in everybody. People with IBS, for some reason, feel it more than that so there isn't a lot of evidence on why some kind of fermentable carbohydrate makes one person feel really bloated and windy and painful and for someone else it doesn't so if we cut out if we suspect if we've got a diagnosis of ibs and that is important that you have a diagnosis of ibs first symptoms for ibs can also be the same as for more um, complicated conditions or more harmful conditions things like celiac inflammatory bowel um, even bloating could be a symptom of um, ovarian cancer, for example. So it's not about thinking, I feel a bit bloated, let's just give this a go. It needs to be under supervision and you need to have other causes excluded first of all. Um, but when it does, when, when you have got a, a diagnosis of IBS, um, cutting out fermentable carbohydrates, there's lots of different groups of that. Um, those FOD, MAP, um, 
letters stand for different categories of those things. I tend not to even go through it with people, what those actually mean. It doesn't matter at the start. We just cut the lot out. So you cut out anything that could possibly cause um, cause those that, that gas production. When you reduce that gas production, it also reduces the other symptoms of IBS. So um, the gas, the wind, the bloating, the urgency to go to the loo, the um, kind of um, swinging from constipation to diarrhea. So um, we cut we cut these things out of the diet. So there's lots of different groups of foods, um, things like um, fructose added in, onion, garlic, beans. There's lots of things you have to cut out and you also have to do it properly. So I see a lot of people who have had a go doing low FODMAP online don't even bother trying. It's really tricky because if you leave one of those things in and that's the thing that's causing the problem, yeah. you've kind of wasted that time. Um, we do it for a maximum of four to eight weeks. I tend to kind of call it call it one way or the other at around the four-week time. You get a pretty good idea after two weeks if it's going to work or not, and then you reintroduce food back in again. It's important to get that reintroduction back in because no one's going to well, not had anybody with low FODMAP who is intolerant to absolutely everything, every single group, it's usually one or two max. Yeah, but it's, it's a really effective way at helping. Sometimes as well with IBS, um, some people kind of get it only like when they're running. It's, it's not true IBS in that sense. Um, people might have known it in the past as kind of runner's trots yeah. and a kind of trial of a low FODMAP can be quite helpful okay. um, for, for those for those people with the symptoms. But you, you know about it quite quickly when it, when it gets sorted. But ultimately, it's got to be done properly, doesn't it? Otherwise, it's just a complete waste of time. Yeah. I mean, don't, I wouldn't even, it, it's so picky. I mean, I, I look at, the, we, we follow the kind of UK guidelines, which are kind of produced at King's in London. Um, dietitians in the UK follow them. And even now, I still have to look at the books and I'm looking at these about four or five times a week. Yeah. yeah so there's still the odd thing and, and it has to be done strictly. Yeah. I remember when I was doing it and just going out for lunch uh, and I just basically phoned the restaurant in advance and said, I'm doing this diet. Please, can you just give me a plain salad? Because it's not, you can't even really just say, oh, cut out, just don't give me dairy or don't give me broccoli. It's like so many random things that are in it, aren't there? So you just, mm -hmm. I literally just phoned ahead and said, I just need spinach and tomatoes and carrots. That's, that's it. Yeah, it's really difficult. Baked potato, chicken, yeah. nothing else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But once you've done it, it's, it's really worthwhile. Yeah, it's, it's extremely satisfying. You know, for me, knowing that somebody's coming in and they're getting cramps every day in most severe cases, people not leaving the house, people having to leave their jobs, mm -hmm. you know, accidents in yeah. the supermarket, big, big lifestyle, quality of life problems that can get sorted in a matter of months, Yeah, you know, without medication. Yeah, but don't do it by yourself. Don't Always even go try. with a dietitian. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, moving on. Um, we had a couple of questions about a plant-based diet. What are your thoughts on a plant-based diet? Do you think it impacts performance? Um, I think we should say, first of all, that um, plant-based and veganism is kind of an interchangeable um, term at the moment. And for us, plant-based generally is, is, is the same as uh, veganism, or maybe a little bit less rigid. Um, so we're going to have a chat about that. Um, Linda asked about it as well, about how Natalie got on with doing Veganuary. So both Natalie and I did Veganuary together. Um, I certainly found it hard. I do have a soy intolerance, I would say, um, so I can't really eat tofu or any soy products, so I found it really tough. 
Um, and also having gone through the FODMAP process and of having IBS in the past, I don't think my tummy survived that well for the month. Um, but I used to work for WWF and um, they uh, really promote a vegan diet and uh, so from that, that point of view I've always been really interested in trying it um, and always worried that I would find it hard and I did find it hard. <laughs> How did you get on Natalie? Miserable. <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating, it was fine. Um, I think I, I chose to do Veganuary um, because I was getting a lot of vegan clients, a lot of people wanting to be vegan. And sometimes it's quite helpful to sort of see the logistical side of it. So, you know, I was advising them on the nutrition side of it, you know, what kind of supplements they might need, what they need in, a kind of, in kind of quite a theoretical way. Um, but I thought it'd be helpful to see what does it actually mean in terms of a supermarket shop going out, being social, that side of things. So give it a go. Now, I'm vegetarian anyway, so I didn't think there'd be that much of a difference. Um, I think game changes with all its faults made me think. Yeah. Um, I think there was lots of lots of I've got lots of criticisms of it. I think it was very biased. I think it was um, making very quick conclusions from quite small little inverted commas studies. It was lacking on the peer-reviewed scientific yeah. long-term studies, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, part of me always has that kind of oh, would it make me faster? Yeah. You know, just you know, I'll give it. Anyway, it didn't. Is the short answer. <laughs> Um, so I think with the vegan diet, I found it was much harder than I thought it would be and it was a lot more restricted than I thought of it. And I think that when people have ethical reasons for becoming vegan, they are far more motivated to stick to it. What I think I kind of concluded from it was if you, if your veganism is your only restriction, so if that's the only diet thing you have to think about, it's not easy, but it's much more possible. I don't particularly like nuts. My main protein source was eggs and dairy. The dairy switch was pretty easy. Yeah, because, yeah, I know I love cheese, but I actually managed to cope. Okay, there are a few vegan cheeses which are actually quite nice. Um, but then if we think about um, where you're getting the protein from, if you're not having soya, like I was saying before about the quality of protein, you're not getting, you need to have a bigger variety. So if you've got any other restrictions, like if, for example, you can't have soya, if you don't like nuts, if you've got IBS and you can't have chickpeas, hummus, falafel, beans, that kind of thing, suddenly there's a really big limit in what you can actually have. Um, it's checking food labels of things. Again, these kind of, and sort of socially, we went to a seaside cafe place in Largs when I was doing Veganuary, and it, I was amazed how I suddenly felt really awkward mm -hmm. looking at the menu there was basically a baked potato and beans and that was it in terms of um a, a vegan diet yeah. um and kind of just even asking the waitress about what's in the soup I personally felt really awkward if you're motivated on the ethical side of things it's I imagine it's easier to do that kind of thing because you've got a real reason why you want to do it um as part of doing Veganuary, I joined various Facebook groups and also the organisation itself who run Veganuary gave you lots of useful um, emails. And that was very helpful for me for general kind of CPD, kind of professional development, uh, to see the kind of um, things that were suggested, lots of different recipes and that kind of thing. Um, one thing I was surprised at is how many people said that within a couple of weeks they were feeling great. Mm -hmm. And this was the kind of overwhelming, I've become vegan, I'm never going back. I feel brilliant, I've got more energy, I'm not tired, I've lost weight and all these things. And I certainly, me personally, wasn't feeling any better. I was feeling pretty restricted, a little bit tired. 
and not particularly enjoying food and not particularly looking forward to meals because I was only picking what I could have, not what I actually wanted to have. Um, one reason that I thought a lot of people do feel better is if your diet's already not good. So by that, if people are never eating fruit and veg, if they're only having takeaways, if they're never cooking from scratch, having a trial of being vegan teaches you those skills straight away. And I thought that was quite valuable. I thought, well, actually that kind of way of calling it something, you could also call it eating more fruit and veg and cooking from scratch, but giving it that name and having the support of that kind of initiative for that month probably changed a lot of people's eating habits and having meat-free days for people that are real hardened carnivores really helpful in terms of bowel health really helpful in terms of heart disease and it's getting more fiber in and it's really improving the quality of diet so I think a lot of the reason why some people feel better on a vegan diet isn't because it's vegan per se it's probably because the quality of their diet overall has improved I found um I joined a couple of groups as well on Facebook. One in particular called Athlegans, um, which there are other groups available. Um, but I think I think that is actually a business. Um, but it was a really helpful group because I found that you could ask a question about your protein intake or whatever it might be, um, and you wouldn't just get oh go watch Game Changers, it'll explain everything. Because I did see I saw a lot of that online this year. And it, it kind of bugged me because I thought, well, actually, Game Changers doesn't it's just a documentary, it doesn't give me any help in terms of what I what, what I can be eating in order to hit the targets that I want to hit for this week or this month or whatever it is. Um, and I was trying to do it, I thought maybe I would be in a bit of a calorie deficit in January um, and without being able to eat soy I found that really hard and on the days I was in a calorie deficit and I was tracking it on my fitness pal which is super useful for January, um, I found that my, some days if I didn't plan it properly my protein was like 19-20 grams which you know I weigh like 65 kilos I need a wee bit more protein than that um, I don't know if you found the same thing that it was difficult to kind of get the information that you needed yeah I think it is and it's also based around that you know what's your lifestyle like and I was finding that more and more I was going to that little section in the supermarket that had the vegan stuff yeah. and buying all this processed stuff that I would not normally not have had. And that's twice the price. Yeah, more expensive. The fact that you've even got to get two sets of milks for your family, you know, yeah. these kind of little things. It's if, if, if ethically you believe it and you, you, you want to do it for that reason, all these little inconveniences become worth it yeah. because it matters that much to you that you don't mind. Yeah. Um, but I was kind of very aware that, you know, I think I nipped into Starbucks at one point and there was a vegan cake and straight away I thought, oh great, a vegan cake, and I bought it. Yeah. I wouldn't have eaten a cake anyway. No. <laughs> but suddenly I'm eating vegan cakes because it's got the word vegan on it. And I think there's a kind of feeling amongst some people that just because it's vegan it makes it healthier. Yeah. And that's not always that's not always the case. No. And you know. Like a Greg's steak bake is still a Greg's steak bake, even if it is a Greg's bake vegan steak bake, it's yeah. still kind of filled with rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> and I think once I found out, I think it was UK somebody was telling me that Oreos are vegan, I was like, oh marvellous, oh, yeah. I don't even like Oreos, but because it was kind of one of the minimum sugary things you could possibly have, before you know it you're eating them. Yeah, and not just one Oreo. I don't think no, I ever no. I don't think I ever had just one Oreo. I think I had at least five at yeah. <laughs> And I think it kind of a lot of it is that kind of I think it, it kind of reinforced the thing to me that if it's not broken, don't fix it. I was quite happy before. Yeah. Yeah. And it's take, you know, tummy, you're not great. No, no. You know, I think I also have a new empathy on what IBS feels like. Yeah. You know, like that amount of hummus and chickpea and falafel is not great. <laughs> 
But sure. there are a lot of people out there um, who are very interested in it and who do follow a vegan yeah. diet and a lot of athletes who are vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what re- realistically, if they're wanting to um, perform at their peak and be healthy and well, what do they really need to think about? Do they need to think about protein? Do they need to think about their calories? Yeah. Do you hear that banded about, like, especially peanut butter? Oh, you know, you can have, get all your protein from mm-hmm. a few tablespoons of peanut butter. Yes, but that's 700 calories. So yeah. they need to make sure they're getting enough calories. They need to make sure they're getting enough protein. Yeah. Um, they need to make sure they're getting the iodine and the B12. So I think the vegan society promote a particular um, vegan-specific multivet. If I was going to do this for more than a month, I probably would go on that one. Okay. Um, making sure that they're getting enough, knowing that actually even when they're having the right grams of protein, if they're vegetable sources, they have what's called anti-nutrients in them, is, is the kind of useful term. Um, so it actually it resists the absorption of those amino acids and those those nutrients in there as well so it's about making sure that you're getting kind of above and beyond the actual volume okay so actually if you're if you're aiming for 60 grams of protein a day then maybe if you're going to be vegan you need to be upping that to like 50 yeah 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 more because of that and also monitoring how you're you're feeling with it as well do you think is it actually working for you um i suppose it's, it's problematic thinking that naming three or four top athletes and saying they're vegan and that's what's made them top athletes. You could get an equal number of hardened carnivores. I can't remember what athlete it was, but it was someone who, I think before Olympic Games or something, was just eating chicken nuggets. I was yeah. saying, but I can't remember who it was. Remember. Someone, someone was saying that. And it doesn't mean that's what's to follow because there's lots of things apart from their diet that's making that person yeah. very good at their sport. Great athlete. A lot of it is working out what works for you and what you're happy doing, and kind of that's my job as a dietitian to make sure that people's views, ethical reasons, um, requirements in terms of their job, in terms of what they actually like, what their families like, and then fit a diet around that because there isn't just one fits all with anything. No, but don't fix stuff that's not broken. No. Okay. Linda, Linda asked an interesting question here. Um, do you think that there are particular cases, for example, perimenopausal females, um, where a veganism or a plant-based diet is not advisable? I don't think I'd ever say something wasn't advisable. It's monitoring how you feel when you're doing it. And I think trying to make big changes in lifestyle when there's other pressures on are always going to be harder. Yeah. So if you're trying to change diet when you're already feeling tired, when already you might want to be losing weight. Um, if you think about the amount you're going to have to eat as a vegan, um, that might make, make it harder to lose weight. Other people, because they're not eating so many takeaways and a cookie from scratch, might find it easier. So it kind of depends on your starting point on your diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the time there's no harm in trying something for about a month and seeing what happens, you know. Yeah. Um, your clients of mine in the past they wanted to go vegan who when I know what their diet's like I know what their lifestyle's like I think it might be difficult to do it and then they've come back a month later and they really enjoy it and it's it's really helped them um not get so many takeaways and cook things more and be more aware of what's in food one thing I will say is it's it's rare that I've seen somebody who's been vegan for more than a year when it's when their diet's bad I tend not to see bad vegan diets okay you know I tend not to see deficiencies that people and I think it's because when somebody makes that decision and they stick to it it is difficult to do there are things they have to consider so vegans tend to be very well informed yeah and therefore make better choices um I don't see the same with vegetarian diets okay 
Um, but I think with vegan diets, I think I found it, you know, I was looking at labels non-stop and yeah. having to check everything. And I think the people that I see, I very rarely need to persuade somebody not to be vegan, if that yeah. makes sense. If they are... They're doing it well. Yeah, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so our final question is a very important one. Do we overthink what we eat during training and racing, especially over shorter distances? I think I know the answer to this, Natalie. Yeah, I think, I think we, probably, we probably do. I think when we're looking at you know, how, how much we need, what our kind of race plan should be, you know, I would tend to sort of have a similar race plan on every race, you know, of a, of a kind of similar distance, you know, have the same kind of pre-race meal, the same kind of things, the days leading up to it. Um, try out what works beforehand, try out what works during, given that kind of like grand per kilo thing. Yeah. On sprint triathlons, you don't need to do any of that. Um, but anything kind of over 90 minutes to an hour, two hours, then then do. And then just repeat it, you know, work out what works well for you. Yeah. Um, a lot of that, I think, you know, Sean was having them all over. That works fine. You know, like things don't have to be scientific. Well, yeah, they're kind of. I mean, more of kind of ticks lots of boxes anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, find find a kind of strategy and then just repeat it. And a lot of that is just part of your kind of pre race prep anyway, and you're kind of getting into the mindset of it. And yeah. if that's porridge before dinner the night before, and that always works for you, that in your mind is you've kind of done everything that you can. Yeah. yeah, I think when you first start getting into triathlon as well, or any kind of activity where it, it becomes a new regular thing that you're doing, all of a sudden you get immersed in this world with the joys of the internet, and you're just overloaded with information, creatine, protein shakes, you know, gels, electrolytes, and yeah. it can be a bit overwhelming if you're new to it, and then it does seem like it's really important, when actually, unless you're an elite athlete, it probably isn't quite as important. Yeah, I think get, get the training right first, and then get the kind of consistency of training, see how your body's coping with it, you know, really you should be seeing improvements, particularly at the beginning when you first start taking up a new thing, you should be getting you know, improvements in, in pace and speed and, you know, in in energy and what you're, what you're able to do. And if you're not getting that because you're feeling low energy, yes, you may need a bit more fluid, more carbohydrate. If you're getting a lot of cramps, maybe think about the electrolyte side of it. Um, if you're starving all the time, look at your total calories, your protein amounts. You know, you're getting colds all the time and having to miss races. So it's kind of... The, the training does the job and the diet supports that training. So the, the diet allows you to do it and allows you to fuel properly so that you can get as much out of each session and allows you to recover from these, those sessions. Okay, well, I think that sums us up. Thank you so much, Natalie. It's been great Pleasure. to have you here. We've learned a lot. Um, if you've got any more questions for Natalie or um, you want to go and see her um, with specific questions, she can help you put together a bit um, of a better plan that will work for you. Um, I'll put the website link up with this podcast, um, but she's also a member of the Glasgow Tri Club group, so you can find her on there as well. Perfect. Thank you so much, Natalie. We'll see you at a race soon. Thank you. And now we have a great race report from Paul Glenn talking about his first ever cyclocross event. My name is Paul Glenn and I'm going to tell you about the cyclocross race I did on the 12th of January at Gars Cube Sports Complex. Um, it was called Cross at the Cube and they had a series of races for the juniors and then there was a half hour beginner session that I went to, a beginner's race, and then there was the B race, then the A race. Cycle cross is a 
bit like cross-country uh, running, but uh, is for bikes. And lots of uh, people that do road ride, uh, bikes through the year would then put on knobblier tyres and uh, race around in the winter in the mud. I've seen my children do it, although both of them have said they're never doing it again after a brief experience with it a few years ago. And I did actually think while I'd taken them down to it that it did look quite good fun. Um, so when I saw that uh, there was a beginner's race at Garth Cube, I thought I'd like to give it a shot. It's usually laps and it's round fields and it's up and down and sometimes there's obstacles and steep hills and generally there's jumping off the bike, jumping back on again. And uh, as I say, I think it thought it did look quite good fun. So I have a gravel bike that I use for commuting and I put some uh, cyclocross tyres on that and gave it a go. And it went very well. I was very pleased with it. Uh, I finished on the same lap as the leaders, so I didn't get lapped, although I was last to come in on uh, on the four-lap uh, race that we completed. Um, but it was good fun. It was, you felt like you were a, a little boy sliding down uh, slopes on your bike. Um, and uh, there were parts of it that were quite hard work, running through the mud, pushing your bike, but a little bit hard to know when to go on, when to go off, but uh, I enjoyed it, uh, and I think I would do it again. I think it would be a wee bit better uh, next time. Uh, people have asked me how I got on, I said I wasn't very good at it, but I did enjoy it, so um, that's my, my feelings on that. Um, it's worthwhile looking out for these races. Often they do have an a introductory session. I think there is um, a ladies' uh, race at Linlithgow where they have a you know a, a, a teaching session beforehand, so people can give it a shot before the actual race. And similarly, something like that at Pollock as well. Um, there are lots of races going on. It's a bit intimidating signing up to the B or the A race, uh, so that's why I went for the beginners uh, race. Um, but there are quieter races uh, that you can go to um, if people want to find out a little bit more information. Uh, GTC do have a cyclocross uh, Facebook page. It's called GTC CX Cyclocross group and if you search for that on facebook you'll be able to ask questions or find out a little bit about it it's something a little bit different to do over the uh, winter months and uh, i did enjoy it and i think i will look out for races uh, in the future that i can do on to club news and david brown is organizing volunteers for the bishop briggs triathlon this year in may so do look out for a facebook post from him and do get in contact with him even if you're doing the event you can help um, set up and take down uh, at the end of the day um, all help is massively appreciated martin smith is organizing the volunteers for the allender junior aquathon um, which is on Sunday the 15th of March and it will be from around about 9.15 till noon um, or just after. There is a Facebook post already on the group for that so you can have a little search and find it. If not, just contact Martin as ever. We really appreciate volunteers. Um, we need them to help make these events run smoothly. We have a new swim session starting on the 17th of February at Bishop Briggs Leisure Dome. So that will be at 6.40am for all you early birds. Um, there'll be one master's lane and one development lane um, mixed abilities and it'll mostly be drills um, so it's a really good opportunity to come and practice some of those um, drills and techniques that we've been learning uh, so that starts on the 17th of February 
We also have some new kits in the club, um, Finnis Freestyler Paddles and Tempo Trainers. So we plan to start introducing these into some sessions so you will be able to test them and see if it's something that you want to include in your own training. So that's it for February's podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope you found it entertaining and informative. Um, next month we hope to have Fiona Mora on talking about strength work and how to incorporate that into our training Um, and if you've got any questions for her let us know but we'll see you at an event soon. Mm -hmm.